So we're going to be looking at 38 and 39 tonight, and that's a, a big chunk of scripture to walk through. And so the best that we're going to be able to do is, is an overview and just pull out a couple of the main points from each chapter. Um, but as we get ready for that, I just want to ask us a couple questions. Um, I think I am going to see it, actually. This is kind of nice. This is sermon number two of the day, and so uh, I'm going to embrace the chair and the restfulness of it. Um, I want to ask you guys this, and these are just rhetorical questions for us to be thinking, so don't feel the need to answer. Um, I guess you could, and it wouldn't affect me or hurt my feelings, but have you ever prayed for a revival only to be confronted with the unchecked sinfulness of the world around you? We pray, God, do a work, God, bring revival, and then what we see is sin upon sin upon sin in the world around us. Because of this and other things, have you ever found yourself discouraged about what seems like a steady decline in the church, in the effectiveness of the church, in the culture around us, perhaps even in your own life? It's easy to get discouraged as we look at the world around us, the brokenness, the sin, and everything that is around us. And sometimes, because of this, it's hard to maintain that confident and exuberant expectation that God is at work to bring about his promises, to accomplish his plans. We see around us such blatant and heartbreaking sin. It's always around us. And so sometimes it can be hard to maintain that encouragement. Sometimes we can get discouraged and we can feel like, I don't think God's really working. The good news is is that Scripture paints a very different story for us. Scripture paints a different picture. Scripture paints the picture of a sovereign God who is working in and through the chaos and sinful mess of this world to accomplish his will and his promises. And that's exactly what we're going to see in Genesis 38 and 39 tonight, is that there is a sovereign God who is working in the midst of what we're going to see is just some of, like, you can't dream this stuff up. There's a reason that this hasn't even hit Hollywood yet, because this stuff is just crazy with what's going on. And yet, in and through it all, God is always faithful to his promises. And I was, I was kind of wrestling with, like, what's the big idea in these two passages? I had both separate, kind of like, okay, I see the big idea in each of these. But I think ultimately the big idea, the takeaway, is simply this. God is faithful to his promises. Now, as we jump into chapter 38 and 39, we want to think a little bit about the background. The background, as far as God being faithful to his promise, is that God made a promise to a man named Abraham. We see this in Genesis chapter 12. God promised Abraham that he would make Abraham a great nation. That Abraham would have a multitude of descendants. God said that he would make Abraham's name great so that Abraham could then be a blessing. Which is wonderful, isn't it? That God would bless Abraham so that he could in turn be a blessing. And then he also promised that in Abraham, through Abraham, all the families of the world would be blessed. And so this promise that God makes to Abraham, this is the setting that undergirds chapters 38 and 39, but everything from Genesis chapter 12 really onward in the entire Bible. God's promise to Abraham is God's answer for the brokenness and sinfulness in mankind. Man made a mess out of God's world and God's good creation. And it didn't take long, did it? 
We see in chapter 3 the fall of man, and we see right away in chapter 4 the results of that. Cain and Abel, two brothers. Now what's interesting is that in the biblical worldview, now in our, in our culture, I think that we probably think of the closest relationship between people as husband and wife. And that may be the closest relationship in our culture. It wasn't in the biblical culture, in that worldview. It was siblings. That was the closest relationships. Oftentimes, marriages would be done to unite clans or families. There was a lot of arranged marriages. And though they were to be loving relationships, they weren't usually the closest relationships. That was between siblings. And so that when we see in chapter 4 of Genesis, after mankind sins and sin is introduced into the world, what do we see? We see the closest relationship that you could have understood or imagined between that of siblings and we see not one brother keeping and caring for the other, but him murdering his brother. And then on it goes to the point where we get to chapter 6 in Genesis and God has had enough. He preserves through his grace and kindness one man, Noah, and his family. And then he wipes out the rest of the world with the flood and starts over. But that didn't answer the problem. It wasn't the answer because we see that Noah's family is no better than Adam and his family. And we're right back in the same problem, culminating then in chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. We see where mankind is coming together, and instead of using their gifts and abilities to come together in humble dependence and worship God according to God's will and plan, they are trying to ascend to the heavens apart from God, building their own tower. And God had had enough of that again. So he comes down and he scatters the languages so that they can no longer work together. That's Genesis 11. And then in Genesis 12, God calls this man Abraham. And God makes a promise to Abraham. And it's this promise that undergirds everything that goes on in the rest of the Bible. Throughout the Old Testament, especially here in Genesis, but carrying on with our Lord Jesus in the New Testament. Just a little bit of background again in 37 that we heard from last week. But if we're going to understand chapter 38... 38 is this weird chapter. Like Mitch told us last week, from chapter 37 onward, right? It's the story of Joseph, except for chapter 38. It's like, it's like Judah was like, hey, what about me? And just like pushed himself in. You ever seen a kid do that? Like, we'll be talking, and we've got a seven-year-old, and sometimes they're starved for attention, okay? Now, none of your kids were probably like this, but ours are. And so every now and then, oh, just last night even, Mando's sitting on the couch, and we're chatting, and I just see Danny. It's like that she's like mulling her way in behind her mom and then peeking her head out, right, because she needs to be seen and heard. Well, it's almost like that's what we see in chapter 38 here. What's going on with this story about Judah just thrust in here? Well, let's remember what happens a little bit in chapter 37 to sort of set the stage for this. Chapter 37 is going to tell us the story of Jacob's children. Specifically, the story of his sons that will make up the 12 tribes of Israel. In chapter 37, we get a, a little peek, a little sneak peek into the inner relationship between Jacob's children, his sons, um, but specifically with regard to one brother, Joseph. Joseph's brothers, simply put, we heard this last week, they just didn't like it. They didn't like anything about Joseph. They didn't like that he was the father's favorite. They didn't like the dreams that he had about ruling over them and ruling over the parents. They didn't like the reports that he would bring to their father. They didn't like anything about Joseph at all. There was nothing about him. So the chapter unfolds, and we see the sinful actions of Joseph's own brothers against him. Does that ring a bell? 
See, the author is drawing our attention right back to the same problem. Here we are again. We have brothers. This was to be unity. They were supposed to be a close, loving relationship. And we see the sinful actions of Joseph's brothers against them. We see their lies and deceit toward their father. And above all, we see their absolute disregard for the ways of God. Now, when we come to the end of this chapter in verse 36, we read this. We hear all of the sinful things that go on. Remember, Joseph's brothers sold him off into slavery, and that was only because they decided not to kill him. That was plan A. Plan B was like, let's make a little money off of this guy. We can sell him, and then we can lie to our dad. We'll take Joseph's coat, right? We'll dip it in some blood from an animal, and we'll tell dad that an animal got him, and he's dead. Sorry, I know he was your favorite, but what do you do? Now, when we look at verse 36, we read this. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And this word, meanwhile, is really instructive for us. It's like we hear this. All this sin is going on, and and we look out and we're like, wait, this is the family that was promised? This is Abraham's family, and this is where we're supposed to see all the families of the world blessed through these guys? This does not look good. And then we hear this. Meanwhile, meanwhile, while all that's going on, it's as if the author is saying, while all this is going on, God is doing something through Joseph. Meanwhile, Joseph is sold, and he he goes down with the Midianites, excuse me, to Egypt with Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. And so this sets the stage then for what we're going to see in chapter 38. Now, uh, one of the things that we want to notice also is then in chapter 38, look at how chapter 38 begins. It happened at that time. What time? The time of meanwhile, if that makes sense. There is this parallel that's going to be drawn between the story of Joseph and the story of Judah. And the author is trying to draw our attention to it. As a matter of fact, that's exactly why this chapter, this passage, is thrust into the story right where it is. Because the author here wants us to draw parallels between the story of Joseph and the story of Judah. Now... One thing that we notice is that we see in chapter 37 just this massive amount of sin in the tribes, in these sons of Jacob who will be the tribes of Israel, and all the sin against their one brother, and we just think to ourselves, this is a mess. The only one of these brothers who seems to have any chance of being somebody that God would say, okay, here's a man of faith that I can then bless and work through, gets sold off into the worst possible situation that you could imagine. Egypt is never, never a place in the Bible that you want it to be. It's never a good place for the people of God to be. Not only that, but do you remember who he was sold first to? Ishmaelites. That's a sign from the author too. This isn't good. You remember Ishmael? He was the brother who was not the brother of promise. He was cast away. And so the author is telling us this is just not a good scenario. But that meanwhile at the end tells us, in spite of all of this, in spite of what you would think when you read this story, God is doing something. God is at work. And that's the way chapter 38 begins then. It happened at that time, Judah. And so the story of Judah is meant for us to to draw parallels between the story of Joseph. Now, I'm just going to read the first eight verses here in the story of Judah, and then we're going to kind of summarize the rest of what happens. But we read this in chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers 
and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hiram. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. Let me just pause there. Right off the bat, we should be alarmed, we should be disturbed, we should know that this isn't going to go well. Because Judah takes for a wife the daughter of a Canaanite. This was not what the people of God were supposed to do. It never goes well when God's people start to intermix with the Canaanites. They worshipped different gods. They worshipped fake and false gods. So we know right off the bat the author is drawing our attention to the fact that this probably isn't going to go well. And let me just say this. That's an understatement. This is one of the most sordid stories that you will read. Or, in our case, summarize. Okay, let's continue. Verse for she conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son. She called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now let me just pause right there. It tells us that Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and this would have been important because it would have been Ur as the firstborn who would have received the blessing and the right of the firstborn, which meant that he would have been the natural leader of the clan. So there was Judah, but then the next one in line to lead the family clan, to have that position of authority and honor, would have been Ur. And so then Tamar becomes important because she is the one who will now bear the heir to the rulership and inheritance of this clan. Now, things just start to go pretty much from bad to worst here in a minute. Verse 7, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. It's going to be so hard to summarize. There's so much good stuff in here, but just a quick note. like Sometimes I think it's easier for us to lose sight of the holiness of God and God's disdain for sin. But God just really doesn't like sin. We hear in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. To, to walk in the way of sin is to walk away from the way of God. To walk in the way of Yahweh, to walk in the way of God, is to walk in the way of life and peace. And so then to turn away from that and to walk after sin is the way of death and destruction. And we see here in narrative fashion that this is going to be played out over and over again to us. So, the firstborn was wicked. He was put to death. Then Judah, verse 8, said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to, to her to raise up offspring for your brother. Now some of you are probably familiar with this. It was what was called a Leverite marriage. And what would happen was, is that if there was somebody in the family, the firstborn gets married, and then if the firstborn male died before his wife could conceive and bear children and an heir, then it was the duty of the brother-in-law, one of the brothers of the deceased man, to then go and marry her and conceive children by her. And that first child would then be heir of the firstborn blessing. And so then Judah says to his second son, Onan, okay, you know what you have to do. Go into her, conceive a son. But Onan, this wasn't really good for him. Because if there is no heir from Ur's family, guess who gets then the bigger blessing and gets to become the leader? He does. So what does he do? Here's what we read. Okay, I'm going to pick back up in verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. 
So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he, 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 he had these relationships with her, but he did it, we'll just say it this way, in such a way that she couldn't conceive. That's summarizing this verse for us. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so here's Onan, and the whole purpose of him taking this woman and lying with her was so that he could then raise up an offspring, an heir for his brother. But what he did was he took all of the physical pleasures and gratification, but in a way that he was sure she would not get pregnant and bring about the heir who would then usurp his position. So you know what God does? He puts him to death too. And so then, and I'm just going to start summarizing from this point on. So then, God, so then Judah says now to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to remain a widow in your father's house. Now for us, we're like, okay, what does that mean? Well, it sounds like it just means that her husband died and she's a widow and she goes back to live with her dad. This is a loaded statement. For her to be a widow, to put on widow's garments was a display that she was off the market. She was a widow. Now, widow's garments and being a widow would also mean that she was to be under the care of Judah, her father-in-law. If she didn't have on the widow's garments and went back with her father, then it would be a complete severing from that family and the obligations to that family. But because Judah says, put on your widow's garments, and then he says, and wait until my youngest son is of age and he can marry you. But you notice what he does. He sends her to her father's house. Judah is saying, I want you to maintain your obligation to my family. I want you to be off the market, which means usually that Judah would be the one responsible for her. But he says, yeah, but I don't want the responsibility. So keep on your widow's garments. Don't get married. You can't be on the market, but I want your dad to take care of you. It's just a mess. It's absolute sin. It's disregarding the way of the Lord. It's wanting your cake and eating it too. And that's what Judah's trying to do. And so she goes back. Now here's the thing. Time goes on, and then we read this. Judah's wife dies. Now, in this measure of time, what became clear is that Judah had no intention of giving his, daughter, his, his third son, Shelah, to Tamar to be her husband. This becomes clear in the text, and it says, actually, let me see if I can find it. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. And then it says this. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now I think what this is trying to tell us is that Judah knew that his third son was wicked too. He sent her away because he was afraid that his youngest son would die also. Which means I think he was afraid that if Tamar was there around this son that he would do some sort of disgusting deed like his other brother. He wouldn't take the responsibility but he would probably find himself indulging in the pleasure. And so she's sent away because Judah says, man, if he's around, he's just as bad as the rest of them and he'll probably die. Now, like I said, at some point Judah's wife dies. It has become clear by this point that Judah has no intention of this th third son getting wrapped up with Tamar, but she's still stuck with this label of widow, which means she has been sentenced by Judah to a life of barrenness, which in this culture was a great shame and reproach. But Judah doesn't really seem to care. Now, here's the crazy thing. Here's the twist. When Judah's wife dies, Judah actually becomes eligible to be one of the people who then could fulfill the duty in the leveret marriage. 
Which is weird, right? But because his wife died, if you read through some of the ancient Near Eastern history about the Leveret marriage and some of the documents, the father-in-law, the, the father of the deceased child could actually, in certain circumstances, be eligible to fulfill this duty. And so Tamar must understand this. And so what she does is she takes matters into her own hands. Tamar hears that Judah's wife died. Now, Tamar knows the family well, doesn't she? She's been a part of the family, right? She's now the estranged daughter-in-law who nobody wants to deal with, but she knows them. So she knows probably when the time of mourning is over what Judah's going to do. He's going up to the sheep shearers, which means he's going to a big party. But she knows her father-in-law. So she takes off her widow's garments. She goes and puts on the clothes of a prostitute because she knows that her father-in-law will most likely, after the death of his wife, seek a prostitute. She sits there on the side of the road, and sure enough, here comes Judah. He doesn't recognize her. She's veiled. She has on the garments of a prostitute. And Judah says to her, uh, what's it going to cost for me to have a night with you, more or less? And she says, well, this and that. And then she asks him, what are you going to give me as a pledge for that? In other words, Judah didn't have the money, or in this case, I think it says it's a goat or something that he was going to bring to her as payment. He didn't have it, so she says, okay. What's your IOU? And then she's like, okay, what I'll take is the cord around your neck with your signet ring on it, your seal, which was something that would be placed like on an envelope with wax. You've probably heard of this, right? And then they press the seal in and so that it would identify who the letter was coming from. So it was a clear mark of identification. She says, I'll take that and I'll take your staff. Well, he goes in. They do what you do with the prostitute. And then it says that she conceived Judah goes to send back the person with the payment. They can't find it. Now, what's, what's the, the, the worst part? Not the worst part, but like as if the story couldn't get any worse, right? We hear that the person who was sent with the payment asks the people around, hey, have you seen the cult prostitute? Which means that not only was Judah now engaged in fornication and prostitution, but he was doing it with one that he thought was a cult prostitute, which means he was also engaged in idolatrous worship through this sexual encounter. I mean, it's just a train wreck. It's an absolute web of the most entangled sin and mess that you could imagine. And it begins to look a little hopeless. And then we read that about three months later, Judah's told this. Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral and she's with child. And Judah is furious. He says, we're going to kill her. We're going to kill her. And so they march her out. And Tamar says, okay, I just want you to know, I'm pregnant by the man who owns this seal and this cord and this staff. And then this is what we hear from Judah Verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. In other words, he says this, actually, what she did, she was in the right. My family had an obligation to her that we absolutely didn't keep up. And she, through the way that she did it and all of that, but she simply did and received what was owed to her from this family. And Judah confesses, she's more righteous than I. Now, what I want us to see is at the very end right here, there's a clear parallel between Judah and Joseph. And this first parallel that we're going to see has to do with this idea. The younger will rule over the older, or the older will serve the younger. Do you remember Joseph's dreams that he had? 
Joseph's dreams that were, were that he, the younger brother of them, would then rule over his older brothers and even over his parents. Now, they didn't like that. They didn't like that at all. But now let's, this last paragraph, and I'm going to read it for us, and then it's going to take a little deciphering to understand what's actually going on here. Um, but we read this in verse 27 in chapter 38. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand. And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. Now, of course, this would have been done because that right of the firstborn was very important. And so the story goes, one of the twins gets their hand out first in labor, gets a thread tied on the finger to mark that it came out first. Verse 29. But as he drew his hand back, behold, his other brother came out. Like, oh, he put his hand back and boom, there was the other brother. Okay. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Okay, now here's where, as we untangle this, and it's a little tangled up, you can sit back and just go, wow, that's amazing. God, you're amazing. And even just marvel at the way the Spirit inspired the text of the Bible what we see in this last paragraph is that Judah's youngest son, Perez, now he was the youngest if you count their age based on the scarlet thread, right? Which said his brother was older than him. Judah's youngest son, okay? Perez, who was deemed the younger one when his brother's hand came out, he becomes the heir and the leader, the leader of Judah's clan as the actual firstborn son of Judah's firstborn son, Ur, by the way of this Leverite marriage. Now, let me explain all of that. That's kind of crazy. Okay, so this guy, now if, you count, if you're counting age by the scarlet thread, okay, he was, this one, Perez, he's actually the youngest son of Judah. But because he's actually the first one out, he inherits the right of the firstborn. And now he becomes... In, in the legal transaction of the right, the firstborn son of Judah's firstborn son, Ur, and therefore the proper heir to the leadership and the greater blessing. So check this out. Judah's youngest son becomes the heir of the firstborn right because by law he is the firstborn son of Judah's actual firstborn son, if that makes any sense. So why this story and why tell it that way? Like, that's kind of crazy, right? Like, one who does that and who tells the story of that? What's that all about? Well, the author wants us to know something. He's making it very clear that the promises made to Joseph in the chapter before, that Joseph, the younger one, would rule over the older ones, is exactly what we're seeing here. Perez was deemed the younger one by the scarlet thread. And so God is reaffirming his promise. God is saying, I'm going to be faithful to that. And the reason that it's important right now is because remember where we left Joseph off. He's just in the midst of all kinds of mess. He's in the worst possible situation that you could ever imagine being in. And it looks so bleak. And then we hear the story of Judah and things don't get any better. You're like, okay, it's almost like we've written off Joseph at this part. It's like, oh, okay, so he's going to talk about Judah. So things are going to get better. And they just, like, tank. <laughs> Big explosion of sin. But then we hear this, and we're reminded. God's promise. God gave Joseph a dream. 
Now remember, this all ties back. God was going to use Abraham's family to bless the nations, to, to see all the families of the world be blessed through them, and he was going to make a great and mighty nation out of them. And by the way, you ever just scratch your head and go, wow, okay, out of these guys? And the good news is, yeah, out of these guys, which means also out of these guys then. If God can do it through them, nobody's off limits. That means God can absolutely use us to reach Woodstock, to see a great and mighty army of Christians raised up here. God can use us. He can use them. He can use us. Now, so the first thing we see is that God is faithful. And we see that through this idea that the the younger will will rule over the older. And then the next thing I want to just summarize and have us look at real briefly in 37, I mean in 38, is this. And it picks up at the end of 37. Remember in 37, here we just see this tangled web of sin with Joseph's brothers. It's just a mess. But we hear at the very end, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And as the story unfolds, this is the, not the worst place Joseph could be, even though that's what it sounds like. It's the absolute best place he could be. And that God was orchestrating all the events of human history in such a way that Joseph then could ascend, ultimately, almost to the throne. I mean, only Pharaoh was higher than him, and that was pretty much in rank, because Joseph just ruled the land. So then, what do we see here? Remember, there's that parallel between the story of Joseph and Judah. So in the very same way that God is going to maintain and use Joseph to deliver Jacob's family, which is that promised and chosen line of Abraham, deliver them from the famine that's about to come, and it will actually be in Egypt that he multiplies them into a great nation. We see here in chapter 38, in the same way that God is using Joseph to save Jacob's family, Israel, God is going to use Judah to save the world. This kid, Zerah, Perez and Zerah, when we get into the genealogy of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1 in verse 2 and following, we read this. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob, here we go, the father of Judah and his brothers. You notice that? Judah and his brothers. Not Joseph, not somebody else. Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez. Just the fact that, that this is the way that God brings about the Messiah. It's just boggle your mind. Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez was the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And it goes all the way on to David, the king. And ultimately to Jesus, the Messiah. It's through this entangled, sordid story of sin and debauchery God is at work to bring about the salvation of the world through Jesus Christ. And this is why I said our big idea is simply this. God is faithful to his promises. And I think sometimes we go, right? And and I even heard it prayed earlier today when we were at church. Like, man, the world is such a mess. And it is. But it's no different than it's ever been. This is the way it's always been, and this is what God has always worked through to bring about his promises. God is faithful to his promises. That's our big takeaway from chapter 38. Now, chapter 39. One thing I think that I really just want us to focus in on this is the unbreakable strength of God's presence for his promise. 
The unbreakable strength of God's presence, we could say this is presence with his people for the purpose of his promise. And that's kind of what we see going on here in chapter 39. Chapter 39 picks up the Joseph story. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian who had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. When you read this verse, it probably doesn't sound to you like it would to an Israelite, like it would to somebody who was, with, at the time of Moses reading this, remember Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, and he writes them for God's people as they get ready to enter the promised land. And when they heard this, they would have cringed at this verse. Anytime you hear this idea of being brought down, that's not a good thing. The, the worldview world of, the, of the Israelites was this, is that whenever you made your way up, you made your way closer to God. This is why we see God uh, coming to his people on the top of Mount Sinai. Or we hear about Mount Zion, or God on his holy hill. Jerusalem, the temple, right, was on a temple mount. Even Eden, the garden of God, is the mountain garden of God. We know that because remember in Eden, there are four rivers that flow down from Eden to water the entire earth. It's never a good thing to be brought down in the Bible. So when you read that in the Old Testament, oftentimes that's a clue that things aren't going well. Now, next we see Egypt mentioned twice. Again, never really something that you're looking for when you're reading the Bible like, oh, they're going to Egypt. That'll probably go well. Not so much. Not at all. Um, also, back to Ishmaelites um, being mentioned here as well. And so everything about this verse just screams, this is not good. Everything about this verse, if, if you were Joseph and you had to dream up your worst possible scenario, this pro you, you wouldn't even have thought of this. You would have had your worst scenario on the list, you would have wrote it out, and your parents would have cringed like, why are you writing that? Don't ever say that again. And then this is worse. But, but, everything here doesn't look good, but here's the reality. None of this is any match for the presence of God with his people. It doesn't matter what your situation is. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what's going on. This is the bleakest of all situations. And what we're going to see in this story is it is no match for the presence of God with his people. God's presence will get you through anything. You can overcome anything if this one simple fact is true. If God is with you. And here's the thing. God grants his presence to his people so that he can accomplish his promises through his people. God grants his presence to his people so that God, he, can accomplish his promises through his people. And that's exactly what we see with Joseph. Worst possible situation, but then verse 2 begins this way. The Lord was with Joseph. And at that point, this worst possible scenario is neutralized. It has no more fangs. It doesn't matter. God was with Joseph. And then the very next thing we read is this. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw, here it is again, the Lord was with him. I think the author is trying to make a point for us. The Lord was with him. And 
He saw that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in the sight, and he attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and he put him in charge of all that he had. From that time on, he made him overseer in his house over all that he had, and the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Joseph's master, Potiphar, was like, I'm not worried about anything. I got Joseph. I mean, this guy's like a rock. He's reliable. He's faithful. All I got to worry about is walk into the fridge, get me some food, sitting down. Joseph's got the rest of it taken care of. He didn't have to worry. Joseph gets thrust in the worst possible position imaginable, but one simple fact is true. God was with him. The Lord was with him. And nothing, nothing can overcome that. Even though we're going to see, it looks like time and time again that that will be thwarted. Now, we saw this sordid story of, of Judah and Tamar, and now we have Joseph. Now, we heard this earlier in the middle of chapter 6. Joseph was a handsome dude, okay? And so Potiphar's wife, she's not a real faithful gal. She sees Joseph. She's used to getting what she wants. She wants him. So she makes play after play after play for Joseph, and Joseph says, how could I do this? Listen, my master, he doesn't worry about anything. He's put everything in my charge. There's one thing that he hasn't given me, and that's you. This draws our attention back, doesn't it? To another story where there was only one thing that couldn't be had. That was the fruit, the tree, knowledge of good and evil. And we ask ourselves, is Joseph going to do better? Well, he does do better. He does do better. (laughs) But here's the thing. It's a broken and sinful world at this point. And so in this world, broken and sinful as it is, oftentimes now, what we will see is that even when you make the right decision, you will suffer. You will be persecuted. Doesn't Jesus tell us that? As a matter of fact, Jesus doesn't just tell you that you will be persecuted. He says that when you're persecuted for his name's sake, which is to say, when you're persecuted for doing what's right, for what's good, we're to rejoice. We're to say that we're blessed that we could suffer with Jesus as many before us and after us have suffered and will suffer. Now, what's interesting about this is that here is Potiphar's wife and she keeps making this play for Joseph. Verse 10, and she spoke to Joseph day after day. Well, if nothing else, she was persistent. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Now then, what we hear is this. There comes a time when none of the men are in the house. She catches him by his garment. By the way, this word garment is referred to six times. Six times. The author brings it up. Like, okay, you want us to remember this. She catches him by his garment, right? And Joseph, not wanting to be in that situation, he's like, I'm out of here. You ever done that? You ever had somebody grab your coat? My kids have done it. You want to hold on to them? You're playing a game or maybe you're just trying to drag them around. I don't know. And all of a sudden, they just like wiggle out of that thing, and you're looking, and you're like, well, I got the coat. I wanted the kid. And that's how Potiphar's wife was. She grabbed the coat. She wanted Joseph. All she gets is the garment. She's disgraced. She's embarrassed. And do you know what people do when they're embarrassed and disgraced and hurt? They attack. That's exactly what she did. She attacked. She took that, and she couldn't believe that he didn't want to be with her. I'm sure if she is married to this guy who has this high-ranking position, she is probably a beautiful woman rich woman used to getting everything that she wants and Joseph won't do it. He's not going to do it. And so she goes and she says, okay, 
Uh, here's what happened. She takes the coat and she shows it around and she said, he tried to, in essence, force himself on me. That's what he tried to do. And I have his coat to prove it. Now at this point in the story, our minds should be going back to somewhere else. To another story just a couple chapters ago. Of another person. Or another time for Joseph. Actually, not even another person. Just Joseph. Back a couple chapters ago. Do you remember? His brothers come to their father with a fabricated lie. And what do they show as evidence for their story? One of Joseph's coats. A garment of Joseph. We see the same thing happening here. Now, what the author is doing, he's trying trying to clue us into something. He's trying to show us the parallel between the two stories. Why? Because what's going to happen here is that Joseph's going to get thrown into prison. But with that parallel back to the story in chapter 37, we're supposed to go, wait a minute. That didn't turn out so bad for Joseph the first time, and so we can have hope this time. And that's exactly what we see. We look in verse 19, we read this, this is where it's going bad. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife had spoken to him, this is the way the servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Now you wonder who he was more angry at. Because what we're going to see is that Joseph gets thrown in prison, but not put to death. It could be that he's angry with both. But he has to save face. And it's not going to do him any good to accuse his wife of making repeated passes at Joseph, although he may know that to be true. But it's going to make him look bad. And so Joseph has to be punished. So he throws Joseph in prison. But you have to ask yourself, like, I wonder who he's more mad at. He's got to at least be wavering. Like, I don't know. I know Joseph and I know my wife. And as I weigh these out, my guess is that it's probably her. But he has to save face. This is a shame, honor, culture. And for him to side with Joseph would bring shame on his family. He can't do it. Joseph is then thrown into prison. And then, though we read in verse 21, what do you think the next words are? But the Lord was with Joseph. There we are, right back again. Why would we hear that? Because the author's just telling us, listen, just like when he was sold into slavery, now he's a prisoner, and you think that's terrible, it's awful. Man, at this point you're going, Joseph cannot buy a break. But the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love. Hey, you could be in prison. You could be in prison, and it doesn't matter. God could work in amazing ways through that. If his presence is with you, and if his steadfast love is shown to you, it doesn't matter where you are or what's going on, you've got everything that you need in that moment right there. Verse 22. Actually, let me keep moving. Uh, steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Verse 22. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. Does that sound familiar? Right back in the same scenario. Joseph gets dumped into a terrible situation. The presence of God is with him. And then God blesses Joseph and things go well. And the people around him recognize it. Like the, the guy who's leading the prison, he's probably thinking... Best prisoner I've ever had. Like, this is perfect. Now, not only, I don't have to do anything. Like, Joseph is just keeping the prison running. Things are going well, and I don't have to worry about anything. Verse 23, here we go. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything. Could you imagine? So here he is. Now, I know they don't have TV at this time, but feet kicked back, got the ball game on. I'm not worried about it. I got Joseph as a prisoner. This is perfect. And then again, he didn't worry about it. He put everything in Joseph's charge. The Lord was with him, and whatever he did, he made it succeed. 
Moral of the story, of course, is that God is faithful to his promises. And this. Am I doing that to the rug? Is that God will grant his presence to his people to accomplish his promises. Now that should encourage us. Because as we stand here, sit here today, this evening, we all have been called here by God for a purpose. God has told us, the Lord Jesus has told us, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And that we are called, therefore, to go and make disciples of all the nations. Which, oh, by the way, is a part of how God is bringing about that promise to Abraham, isn't it? As he is then making a great and mighty nation of Abraham and he is blessing all the families of the earth through Abraham. And here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. The Bible teaches us that because of Jesus Christ, because of what Jesus has done, because Jesus is himself the very manifestation of God in human flesh, Because in the person of Jesus Christ, the presence of God has fully dwelt. God has tabernacled, come and dwelt among us in Jesus. And that by placing our faith and trust in Jesus, we are united to Jesus by faith. When you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is the Son of God, fully God himself, who has taken on flesh, and that he suffered and died on that cross for our sin, and that he was raised on the third day and now has been ascended to the right hand of the Father and rules and reigns as Lord over all creation. When you believe that, the Bible teaches us, That we are made one, united together with Jesus, that God gives us his Holy Spirit. And because of this, the presence of God is always with us. And if the presence of God is always with us by the Spirit because of our union with Jesus, then God will be with us and God wants to use us to accomplish his promises. God has promised That this wretched world wrecked with sin will be set right one day when Jesus comes back. But before that, that he wants to use us. He wants to use his church, all of us, to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God has promised that he will use us. That the way that Jesus is building his church, as he has promised to do, is in and through you and me. And we look at this world and we can get discouraged like we talked about in the beginning. We can get discouraged that, God, are you keeping your promises? I mean, I'm witnessing to people, I'm sharing with people, I'm doing this and that. And really what I see is just increasing sin and diminishing return maybe on the people I'm witnessing to. And all you need to know is this, is that at the end of the day, God is faithful. God is faithful. And you might find yourself struggling, like, I don't know if I can do this. And just remember that God has given you his presence for Jesus' sake through the Holy Spirit. And he wants to accomplish his his promises through us. And this is the greatest gift that we could ever receive, is that we would be given God's presence permanently, abiding, dwelling within us through the Holy Spirit, so that we can have confidence that even if today didn't go well when we were witnessing or were sharing or if we're persecuted for righteousness sake, that somehow, even in the midst of a web of entangled sin, God is accomplishing his purposes and his promises through us. Through us. That's amazing. 
And so that's what he's called us to. And so the takeaway is simply this. What's the application? The application is simply this. Just trust and believe that. If you'll trust and believe that truth, that God is faithful, then God will use you in ways that you could never imagine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for for the Old Testament. Thank you for Genesis and the stories that we've heard. Uh, Lord, we thank you that through all of this, you brought about salvation of the world through Jesus. God, I pray that you would help us to experience in greater ways your presence that dwells with your people to accomplish your promises. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.